welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we've been going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of, purportedly, the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We are now down to number 18 on the list. Which means that in this episode, we'll be talking about Jerry Goldsmith's score for the landmark 1968 science fiction film, Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes was written by Michael Wilson and Rod Serling, based on the novel by Pierre Boulle. It was produced by Arthur P. Jacobs and directed by Franklin Schaffner. John, tell us about Planet of the Apes. Well, it's a high-concept science fiction story about some astronauts whose spaceship crash lands on what appears to be a distant alien planet, where they run afoul of a society of apes. It stars as the human astronaut, Charlton Heston. As the sympathetic ape scientists, Kim Hunter and Roddy McDowell. And as the ape bad guy, Maurice Evans. So Charlton Heston's astronaut character winds up getting captured by these apes. He must struggle against them on behalf of his dignity and his species. And spoiler alert, there will be a spoiler. Good enough? Good enough. My question to you, John, is what is the deal with this movie? Why <laughs> why is there a planet of the apes? And why is that like a big thing that everyone agrees should be a thing? It seems so bizarre to me that this is like one of the monuments of American popular culture is a planet of apes. Does it make sense to you? Yeah, I think it makes sense. It just seems so arbitrary and goofy and deliberately bizarre, and then we keep going back to it. How many planets of apes are there at this point? Like 10? Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, there's this series of movies that I haven't seen any of the ones past this first one, and then there there was the remake in 2001 by Tim Burton, right. which everybody likes to forget exists, and then there's the current you know, recent trilogy that I actually like quite a bit. Right. So there's uh, three recent ones and one intermediate one. And then there's like five originally, something like that. Something like that. They go beneath the planet of the apes. They escape That's from right. the planet of the apes. They battle for the planet of the apes. Those are the ones, yeah. People just cannot get enough of a planet of apes. I mean, it's... Why is this a thing? Well, I mean, I think it's meant to be a commentary on humanity and... Uh, the flaws of humanity and the trajectory of evolution. And, you know, it's holding up a magnifying glass to our society and the ways that it could go wrong and that it could all fall apart. Maybe. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, apes are humans' closest uh, evolutionary relatives, so that's why they picked apes to become the dominant species in this thing. Right? I mean, it's a little bit on the nose even in the screenplay about the switch em up parody of contemporary society. Yeah, but it's not about switching up our relationship to monkeys. It's not like the relationship between humans and monkeys is inverted. It's just... It is that they're inverted. Well, we don't round up monkeys and keep them as slaves and like spit at them with contempt. Well, if a monkey started talking, people would love that. They would be like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. They wouldn't be like, you shut up, you stupid monkey. You'll never be as good as a human being. <laughs> yeah, but uh, don't the scales fall from your eyes about uh, how we treat animals in zoos because of this clever inversion in the movie? <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, captivity is not the greatest, but it, it just seems like this. What if monkeys were really mean to him? It's shocking. It really makes you think, man. I, I think that what it intends to really make you think about is the concept of humanity blowing it or blowing it all up as he has it and a different species taking its place as the dominant species. Uh, yeah, let's just get this out of the way. Everybody knows that's in the movies, the current movies that everybody's watching nowadays, right? The planet of the apes is Earth, okay? Everybody knows this, right? Wait, wait, wait a minute. The planet of the apes is Earth? Did you not get that? The the planet Earth? Okay, yeah, fine. Okay, it's a, it was a 
you know, probably a pretty fun twist for audiences seeing it in 1968. I guess they didn't see it coming. Why didn't they see it coming? I mean, they land on this planet that has perfect Earth atmosphere and gravity. It has human beings on it. That has human beings (laughs) and also a different species that speaks, you know, mid-Atlantic English. Yes. It strains the suspension of disbelief that Charlton Heston wouldn't have guessed at it until the very end. But all right. So the screenplay for this was written by Rod Serling of Twilight Zone fame. And right. it is effectively a feature-length Twilight Zone episode. And the twist at the end is a classic Twilight Zone-style twist to the point where it, in fact, is the twist on an episode of The Twilight Zone where there's some astronauts. They're stranded on a barren planet and they end up killing each other to stay alive. And then they uh, crawl to the edge of the desert and look out and see a highway because they actually just crashed in Nevada somewhere. I just spoiled that episode of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> it's similar also, forgetting the twist, it's similar to the one where, you know, the famous Eye of the Beholder episode where right. it turns out that the beautiful woman is the ugly one here. Like, wow, really makes you think. So there's definitely some kind of really makes you think going on. In this movie. Yeah, a friend of mine recently described the Twilight Zone twist formula as like the Yakov Shmirnov joke of TV writing. In Soviet Russia, you are the ugly people. Right. <laughs> In Soviet Russia, you are the yeah. apes. <laughs> On Planet of the Sandwich, the sandwich eats you. That's right. <laughs> so I guess that pretty much sums up my tone of skepticism here. Planet of the Apes, to me, is not so intrinsically that different from Planet of the Sandwiches, but okay, it has a lot more going for it. Man, now I'm, I really want to see Planet of the Sandwiches. <laughs> it's scary, John. I don't know if you could handle it. Well, next time I eat a sandwich, I'm really going to think about it now. Yeah, think about how uh, your hubris, you know, man's hubris to just eat sandwiches as though they were made for him. Right. When all along, yeah. I've been a sandwich this whole time. So anyway... I don't want to be sounding like a complete party pooper. I enjoy it. Did I say that earlier? I enjoy The Planet of the Apes. It is a little goofy to me, but I enjoy it. I do too. Is the movie really about animals, animal rights? Is it about environmental stewardship? Is it about the nuclear arms race? Is it an allegory for racism or bigotry, other kinds of bigotry? Is it some, have something to do with Vietnam that was going on at the time, which you can totally read people online saying that this is how you're supposed to read the movie? I don't know. Could be any of those things could be none of those things. Yeah, it's definitely opening itself up to sort of let you put any of those interpretations that you like onto it. Right. But what they all have in common is that they have to do with the standard American mainstream cultural received understanding of the order of the world being turned on its head or thrown out of whack or you are disoriented from your sense of how things really work. That's true. That is what it is setting out to do is to confront you with a disorientation. Exactly. And then whatever other phenomenon and culture you might be inspired to see from a different perspective because of this strong confrontation with disorientation, then so be it. Right. And this is the time of the counterculture. This is a time when that sort of had a place in the American culture. Realizing that you had things backwards, realizing that you had things upside down, having to cope with the question well, what's really going on? What are really the rules here? Who's really in charge? Yeah. So that was the moment, and that seems to me like the heart of this movie, regardless of what specifically the movie means. It's an experience of going, whoa, um, what's really going on here? How does the world really work? Yeah, that's well observed. So, Andy, how do you think that the score plays that game? My thesis statement is that this score wonderfully plays exactly that game and nothing else. I mean, this is a score about disorienting you from your rules and posing to you the impression that there is some other kind of order, there are some other rules, it's not clear what they are, but something else is governing this music and it is a little too alien for you to grab onto, and it tantalizes you with that the whole time. What do you think of that? Yeah, I definitely think that's in there. I definitely think it's doing that. So I think at this point, we now have to address the fact that 
this sounds like kooky music that is unpredictable every which way. It's unpredictable in terms of what notes you're going to hear, it's unpredictable in terms of when you're going to hear them, and what instruments and what sounds are going to be making those notes. It just, everything seems to be stochastic and Ooh. bizarre. Wait, John, what does stochastic mean? <laughs> it means uh, randomly determined in a statistically random sense. Well, we'll discuss how stochastic this is. But um, yeah, this is a music that makes you say, what is that and why is it doing what it's doing? And can I predict what it's going to do next? It is utterly different from all of the other music that we've talked about because it's just done in a different language. It doesn't have melody. It doesn't have harmony. It doesn't really have a followable tempo, except in a couple of very isolated spots. Well, it certainly has rhythm that you can sort of get aligned to. Yeah, but it's constantly subverting it and changing it. And it, this this music does not have a beat, and you cannot dance to it. Well, you can't dance a human dance. You can't dance a Aha. an earth dance to it. But it definitely has rhythmically compelling, you know, sort of propulsive beats. Yeah, that's true. But I'm saying that it is... The ways in which it is off-kilter and unexpected and unpredictable are across all of its dimensions. Yes. So how did he do that? We're saying his agenda here, or I was saying the agenda is to tempt you with the sense that there's an order but it's an inscrutable order right that might sound like a kind of tricky balancing act but luckily for jerry goldsmith modern composers had been working on exactly that problem for 50 years there was a whole school of writing that music it's called serialism which refers to the fact that various aspects of music are determined by a serial order that is kind of arbitrary but adhered to consistently. And there are rules that get formulated. If you have an order of 12 notes in a row, let's say, you have to go through all of them before you go back to the beginning of them. There are these arbitrary kind of mathematical rules that can generate music that is totally untouched by what we think of as, you know, Western music, through the history of Western music. It has no harmony, it has no melody. It is intentionally trying to do a different thing. The father of this is considered to be Arnold Schoenberg, and he created this system called the 12-tone system. Uh, but there are other systems of serialism that are not 12-tone, and I don't think that this score is, is it? Um, I believe it is. I believe that there is a tone row that governs the score. In fact, I recorded it at the piano earlier just in case we needed it. Oh, well. It's this. Now, when they say 12-tone composing, the 12-tones are basically just all of the available notes. Not just notes in a scale, but possible notes in an octave. Like if you play, including the white and black notes on a piano, if you play every note on a piano... Uh, There's 12 notes in an octave, including all the white and black keys, yes. Right. So instead of do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, which brings us back to do, the 12-tone system says basically take your entire palette for composing, these are the only 12 tones you've got, and just pick some order that they will always come in. And you're always going to play basically all of these 12 notes before you play any other notes. Which is not a normal way of using notes. This basically ensures that you use them all pretty much equally. If you imagine a painting that had to use every paint color equally, there's this kind of ensured... Um, Insured brownness. <laughs> well, it's not necessarily brown. He manages to make all kinds of different local colors. Oh, oh, yeah. It is essentially a system of constraint that prevents you from being too human. And that is the intention. Yeah. It's like the composer says, I'm going to wear these manacles, which will make sure that whatever I put to paper, none of my human instincts will have too much power over. I will be forced to be strange. I want to make a personal statement about this, which is that I 
really dislike serial music. It's a very academic pursuit, and I was exposed to it in academia, and I found it really off-putting, and I found the intentional abdication of, as you're saying, humanity as it understands music to be asinine. And I really hated it. And you are not alone. That is not a totally fringe opinion. There are many people who hate this stuff. There are many serious musical thinkers and writers who have been hating it all along, and it has been contentious to one degree or another for all of its hundred and hundred years it's been of this kind of music. A prominent composer and proponent of serialism in the 50s was a guy named Milton Babbitt, who wrote a magazine article <laughs> titled, Who Cares If You Listen? <laughs> he was advocating for this very academic approach to music that it's not for the listener, it's this academic pursuit in a vacuum. And he said, who cares if you listen? And that's the sort of attitude you kind of have to convince yourself to have when your music sounds like this. You know, you listen to that Babbitt music and it's just so intentionally unlistenable. But I love this score, even though I kind of hate the attitude behind this compositional system. I think that because it is used in a like fundamentally interesting way to tell the story, as we've been saying, the alienness of it is completely intentional. And then within that system, he is still able to be sensitive to the moments in the movie and create moods, create atmospheres, create emotions out of that bizarre alien language. I think it's a stunning accomplishment. And it is kind of the only application of serial writing that I care to hear. Well, why do you have to, why can't this be a learning moment? I mean, why can't you say, oh, this gives me some insight into what the aesthetic ends might have been all along? I mean, isn't uh, serial writing, isn't atonal writing kind of the science fiction of music, of serious musical composition? All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, you got some you got some stuff to recommend for me now, now that I like this score to... Uh, now, I, now I'm ready to... I don't know to... if I have stuff to recommend to you, but, you know, Jerry Goldsmith was hardly inventing these sounds. I mean, I think this comes out of... Well, some of the sounds come out of Stravinsky and Bartok, who didn't write in that style, but I think some of it comes out of Schoenberg. There is some kind of intrinsic aesthetic connection here that I feel like is valuable to us. What's so great about movie music is that stuff gets done in movie music that when people hear it in the concert hall, they go, I don't know what that is. I, you know, that's not done in good faith. That's been done to make a monkey out of me. <laughs> but then when you see it in a movie, you're like, oh, well, if it means that someone has crash landed in another galaxy and is going to die the last living human in the year 3679 or whatever year it is. And you're like, okay, I get that within that, you might make music that sounds like this. To me, it's like this is a little window. Like, well, maybe in the concert hall, you should let in the potential that the music is about something that weird. Hmm. Yeah, see, I think it requires the imposition of an outside narrative structure. I mean, if I was sitting in the concert hall just listening to this score, you'd be cranky. Yeah, I think I would get cranky. We got to give credit to this score that it is, it's very sensitive to the picture. You know, we can find a lot of cool places where it really nicely anticipates action or underscores it or gives just the right mood. But just beyond that, I mean, even when the picture is not playing, I find this fairly excessive. I mean, 
I have a hard time getting through works of Schoenberg that I just don't have any difficulty getting through this album of the complete score. I find it appealing in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, that's true. I should backpedal on that because I really have been enjoying just listening to it on its own. You're right. So this is not a good example of something that I would be cranky to hear in the concert hall. I think it's because there is, in fact, a human oversight on this. And that comes from the story of the movie. Yes, he chose this musical language in which the notes relate to each other in weird ways that we're not used to hearing, but it's still made out of storytelling decisions. That's what this score has that other serial music that I dislike does not have. Okay, but a movie like this shows that alienness is a human goal. It's something that humans want in their art sometimes. So if there's absolute music that has opted for alienness, Maybe we don't need to be so suspicious of it since, look, we were okay with movies doing that. This movie could have had a much more traditional score written to match the story. He could have written a very musically old-fashioned score about when Charlton Heston gets scared and when Charlton Heston has a victory and when Zira the monkey shows him compassion. Such a score could easily have been layered onto this movie and seemed like the appropriate score for this movie. It's not like being weird was his only choice. It was a choice that he made. It's just that in this context, you sympathize, or at least you're not offended by it. Yeah, but I think he still manages to do all of those things, even as he's being weird. Uh, I think he finds a way to convey, you know, when Charlton Heston is in a fight. Or when he's feeling anxious or tense anticipation. or if he's being chased. Or even if he's in a a relatively tender moment. On the DVD commentary, Jerry Goldsmith says at one point that he joked with the director about the scene where Charlton and his mute human uh, companion the female human that has been put in his cell for him to mate with. He has a somewhat tender scene with her. Jerry Goldsmith says, we joked that this was the love theme from Planet of the Apes, and it's just somewhat tender music in this same alien harmonic world. He picked this crazy world to be in, and then, yes, extends that style toward whatever each scene asks of it. Let's go back and look at how he establishes this crazy world. So their spaceship crash lands unexpectedly in the middle of some water, and we hear this utter cacophony of music. As the ship is foundering in this water. And then the music kind of as the camera pulls back through the window of the spaceship into the interior, the cacophony of the water kind of fades out. It drew a line there that outside of this window is utterly, you know, is alien. And it's a little bit more placid inside. When they're waking up, you're talking about. Yeah, when they're waking up. You know, their ship starts sinking in the water and they have to scramble around and blow the hatch and they're getting all wet and they're climbing around and everything. This kind of hectic scene, I think there was a long cue written for it, a long musical cue that got cut. Yeah, there's a long cue that the middle of it is out. The beginning is the part you were just talking about and then a couple minutes later it pops back in. But yeah, they silenced the middle of it. And that was the part that was taking place inside of the spaceship, the interior set. They cut the music, and I actually think that was the right decision. Even though here you can listen to it, it's, you know, it's exciting. And it right away would have been establishing this texture for the listener. And it would definitely have been conveying a sense of danger and excitement and high stakes. But yeah, it's not there. We just hear the sound effects. Get out of that signal! What signal? The words that we've landed! 
And I think that was the right call because I think he was sensitive right off the bat that if he was going to be otherworldly with his music, he had to keep it associated with this strange new world that they're in. Their interior set isn't a strange new world. That's where they've been for 18 months. The music had to be like a part of this alien landscape. Hmm. You said, let's see how he establishes things. I think my favorite moment in the whole score. Ooh, I wonder if it's my favorite moment in the whole score. Uh, probably not. Oh, okay. My, I think my favorite moment in the whole score is when we see the title card at the beginning. Huh. Because that's when he kind of unfurls his bag of tricks in one gesture. Huh. The opening titles are against kind of a eerie outer space background. We see some stars and things moving by. And then you hear this fanfare <laughs> as the title comes up. It's my favorite moment because the impact of the score is kind of the impact of all of these weird things that he's thrown together. And that's this moment where he pulls back the curtain and says, look what this music is going to sound like. Sure. So I just thought I could just list briefly all of the things that Yeah, go for it. List all the things that are in there. So the bars right before that, we're hearing this thunking noise. That is a piano being played with someone's finger on the string inside the piano, so it stops and makes it not sound like a normal piano. And then this eerie sound. Yeah, it's a bass slide whistle. Which, understand, is not an instrument that exists anywhere else. This is like a novelty instrument. He, in fact, says in the commentary he got it out of a box of stuff that had been used for Disney cartoons. It was probably built custom just to make these deep slide whistle sounds. Uh, That scratching noise down there is an electric harp, which is like an electric guitar, but a harp with an amplifier. And they are scraping vertically on the string rather than plucking it. So 100% of these sounds are not normal orchestral sounds. And then the main fanfare is a ram's horn. Actual ram's horn playing these two notes, like for the Jewish New Year. (laughs) Even when Charlton Heston is not being cast as a prominent Jew from (laughs) biblical times, they still make him go to high holiday services. Yeah, that's right. Jerry Goldsmith says in the commentary, he says, it's only got two notes, but they work. In the background, you hear horns going, bending their note. The horn players have their hands in the bell of the horn, and they push it in and close it off, and it changes the pitch as they're playing it and bends it like that. You've got a gong being scraped with a metal stick, probably. And that's combined with this thing that I guess Jerry Goldsmith made up, which is that some of the horn players take the mouthpieces off and just blow air through them, which makes like a sound, which blends with the gong sound. You've got a couple of different kinds of drums in there. You've got a bamboo clacking and a deep drum and timbales played with snare drum sticks. There's also the snap pizzicato, which is where sure. the cellos and basses, instead of just plucking the string sideways, they pull it out and it snaps back and hits the instrument and makes kind of a... You sort of hear the note and you also sort of just hear a slap. It's just 20 different things, none of which are really your standard orchestral sounds, that he has piled into one bar's worth of shock, in a sense. It's thrilling to me every time I hear it. It is thrilling, and it's such an interesting combination of odd sounds, but I think it's crucial to point out that many, if not most of them, are being made by standard orchestral instruments that are being interacted with in unusual, unorthodox ways. So then we hear this this effect, which I think is really the only electronic meddling that he does, which is the strings play this pizzicato chord, that he runs through uh, an echo, delay, reverb effect. Yeah, which was very simple. They had a loop of tape 
they would record it to the tape and then as the tape went around in a loop it would play it back several times and that's it no fancy computer technology i think it's very evocative of like a void of space we're seeing these splotches of blue color on the screen that are meant to be like the ship is going through hyperspace or whatever it is and we're floating through space and this just feels very floating through space yeah that echoing is fantastic it's such a simple manipulation but it creates such a deep rich strangeness And then this wacky little melody, heavily in quotes here. This is what I believe to be the tone row that governs the whole score. If you take out the repeated notes... And again, the tone row is just the academic term for the particular order of 12 notes that you pick for your serial composition process. Right, so like the pizzicata that we were just talking about... We're playing this same order of notes in combinations of two. Two. Then the next two. Then the next two. The next two. Now this flute is playing the same order one at a time with some repeated notes. And so on and so on. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out that he in no way is expecting anybody to get this, to like be tracking this series of 12 notes. I think the intent is for you to at some subconscious, subliminal level kind of get that there is something going on, but not know what it is. I think that the feeling that ah, some of these sounds seem kind of connected to the other ones, maybe... Uh, but right. I don't know exactly how. Have I heard this before? Have I not heard this before? That is the effect that this music deliberately is creating. Sure. There is no theme from Planet of the Apes, to be truly clear. There is a, a non-theme that he used to ensure that there wouldn't be a theme from Planet of the Apes. <laughs> right, but this kind of analysis of, oh, you know, here are these two notes, and then the next two notes in the thing, and then also this other instrument is going through the sequence of notes, and that is an analysis that you can do on close inspection of the score. But it is not anything that a listener would be expected to be able to discern. What I think is actually more interesting here is this little outburst that the piano keeps doing. And then you, a little later you hear it do it again. I love that so much as a kind of alien order. You know you're going to hear it again. You hear it twice, and then the third time you're like, there's the piano doing that thing again. It's like observing some strange animal that you, you don't understand its behavior, but you recognize its behavior. It's so wonderfully anti-human expressive. Is it angry? Is it normal? Is it abnormal? You don't know. You just you just know it as a phenomenon. You get used to the phenomenon. And that's the headspace that this movie wants us to be in. I see what's going on. I just couldn't tell you what it means. So he comes up with all of these interesting, unexpected timbres or you know instrument sounds that are often contrary to how you're supposed to play the instrument uh some of them are not in fact orchestral instruments being played in weird ways some of them are found instruments like the part that i wanted to talk about uh i don't know if it's my favorite part but i really like this point in the score so these three astronauts marooned on what they think is an alien planet start out exploring and they're going through this weird landscape let's go which direction That way. Any particular reason? None at all. Actually, the moment that sets off this cue, Charlton Heston throws his head back and unleashes this kind of maniacal cackle about the absurdity of where they are and the sentimentalism of his <laughs> comrades. <laughs> and that floats over this cut to them walking across the landscape. 
And it's this kind of echoing, repetitive sound of his cackle that I feel like immediately gets picked up and repeated by this tape delay pizzicato effect that comes back in. It kind of felt to me like the, the landscape is laughing back at him. So I, again, he's setting this association. He, he's playing the sound of the strangeness of where they are. Anyway, they go along. There's some conch shells that wind up getting played in this texture. Then they come to a hillside. There's loose sand or gravel on this hillside, and they kind of slip slide their way down it. And he introduces this weird, tinkly, metallic percussion thing that just so wonderfully sounds like the skittering of little rocks. Those are mixing bowls. Those are stainless steel kitchen mixing bowls, which you've got in your kitchen. You too can score an alien landscape. It's a wild sound and a wild idea for a sound to put in your movie. And in the score, he marks it mixing bowls and then parentheses it says Emil Richards, which is the percussionist whose idea it was in the first place that this could be an instrument and who was going to play them. And I just wanted to mention that because I think that Hollywood musical culture is a really cool scene that doesn't, I think, get thought of as a scene as much as it really is. This is a place where particular musicians and their particular fascinations, it says like Tibetan horn. And then it says which trombonist he knows is going to be able to play a Tibetan horn. There's room for all of this blending. Like, there's an instrument in there called the Lujan, which is an invented instrument from this California sort of art music instrument inventing well, culture. Well, what's a Lou, Andy? It is called that because it was named after someone named John Lewis, so it's not... Oh, really? <laughs> it's not totally a joke. A Lujan is a thing that someone made yeah, I'm up. I'm listening, Andy. Tell me what a Lou uh, is. John. <laughs> it's not a joke. I mean, it's meant to sound like someone's name. Okay, sorry, go ahead. It's like a wooden box with holes in it and metal lids have been placed over the holes so that when you hit them with a mallet, they sort of make this thum, thum, thum. There was this sort of experimental new music scene in California of people inventing new instruments and creating these new sounds and high art music, very avant-garde, you know, an avant-garde scene. And this kind of stuff gets just eagerly incorporated into Hollywood use because there was room for it there. And to me, that's one of the things that's invigorating about listening to movie music is that there's not a lot of resistance to, well, let's take this crazy avant-garde instrument and these crazy avant-garde techniques from two completely different concepts of what constitutes avant-gardism. Let's just mix them up and we'll also put in some Hollywood strings. A film score can combine stuff that there aren't a lot of cultural opportunities for these things to blend together. The hybrid musical culture that you hear in a score like this is, to me, satisfying just in that it is this hybrid culture. Yeah, well, I think it's uh, appealing because it's not precious about what is academically interesting, like, you know, the Babbitt stuff. It's trying to work. At bottom, it's got to work. Right. But it is similarly not precious about being conservative in, you know, like, oh, we couldn't do that. It's too weird. It's not afraid of being weird. It's not afraid of being cheesy. It's not afraid of anything. Yeah. It'll do whatever it wants. It's both open-minded and practical, which is, yeah, a great thing about film music. You're absolutely right. So I just like seeing the names of the musicians specified on the score because it is a group of people arriving at this stuff. And in the commentary where he says he went through a box of sound effects doodads from Disney cartoons so that he could find a bass slide whistle to stick in his movie, that too is a kind of, you know, only in Hollywood, only in L.A., only in this particular moment and place would all of these sounds have arrived together. Because a lot of them are ethnic instruments or they are from particular traditions. They're some... Uh, 
Indonesian percussion instrument and uh, like we said, the shofar, you know, Middle Eastern ram's horn and the conch shell. These things are played in various places on earth, just not the same place on earth. I think it's so interesting how he accomplishes this otherworldliness. Kind of at bottom, the texture of it really is worldly. It's organic sounding, and it's made out of actually familiar materials. And I don't think that that was a coincidence. I think that he intentionally tried to make something otherworldly out of things that were worldly. And I think that that is a, you know, a metaphor for the film. Oh my gosh, it was an orchestra the whole time. Uh huh. I, I want to contrast it with, you know, another science fiction classic from 10 years earlier, I think, Forbidden Planet, which is, you know, best known for Robbie the Robot. It was scored by a husband and wife team. I forget their names right now, but they were really pioneers in using electronic sounds. These were the dawn of the synthesizer, and they made these real beeps and boops that scored this bizarre outer space story of a spaceship crew landing on another planet, just as the spaceship crew in our movie appears to land on another planet. So it's this strange planet, and the strangeness of it is played in this alien way with these totally new sounds. And, you know, this kind of technique was very much in vogue and was very much used, uh, I think, a lot in lower-budget science fiction projects through the 50s and 60s. But like that, you know, Goldsmith says in the commentary that he knew that this kind of texture was available to him. It would have been a valid way to, to do it. And he chose not to. He chose to use actual orchestral instruments. And I think that landed for me, actually watching it. It landed for me. He has made this crazy alien landscape, but it's made out of stuff that I know. And I think that really resonated with, you know, the surprise ending of the movie. I feel like that's the Twilight Zone thing. That's the Twilight Zone attitude. The interest isn't really in science fiction where you think about truly alien stuff that science is leading us toward and what it's actually like on Neptune or whatever. It's about mixing up psychological elements that are already in your imagination, already in your mind. Like when you have a dream, you dream about things from your real life and they've been yeah. connected to each other different ways. And this is really more of a dream than an actual science fiction premise, although obviously the sequels, and the, you know, they took the science fiction of it more and more seriously when they had to extend it. But at heart, it's kind of like familiar images shuffled into a disturbing strangeness. I think this technique actually explains why it's so good, why it's so effective, why he has been able to come up with something that is so evocative and compelling. I'd like to draw a comparison with special effects. Mm -hmm. You know, he has to get his hands dirty. As opposed to the beeps and boops of Forbidden Planet, where you set a computer and you figure out the settings and then it kind of generates this stuff. I mean, he has to take incredible pains to figure out all of these notes and to figure out all of these bizarre effects that he's going to use. And it kind of put me in mind of how they built the Millennium Falcon at Industrial Light and Magic. They cobbled together this model of bits and bobs. You know, they kind of had to think on their feet and put together this conglomeration of spare parts from other things and bend them all into this vision of an overall effect. And it had to be made practically in the early days of CGI, people were tempted to compare the stuff that didn't look as good, didn't look as convincing when it was rendered with computers as the kind of model work that Industrial Light and Magic was able to do. Because in order to do that, they had to like get in there and figure out what was going to work. And because of that, they were more in tune with how to use these objects in their storytelling. I think similarly, like this is the Industrial Light and Magic approach to scoring this. He figured out all these bits and bobs that he could take from other things and put together in this unusual way and his hands were down in there and he kind of had to have this mastery of the craft of it that he might not have been compelled to do if he was working with electronic textures. I think the analog nature of it leads to its masterfulness. Yeah, it's very organic yeah. and maybe your complaint about academic serialism 
relates more to this, the question of how much the algorithm determines the product or just pitches up material that the composer then has to use. I think that, I mean, you're saying about CGI, the computer algorithm ends up determining so much of the image that it's not something someone had their hands on. And Jerry Goldsmith's attitude here is there is, in a sense, an algorithm that generates bizarro raw material, but then he has to pick up this stuff and fully imagine it and fully construct and build something with it. Yes, yes, imagine and construct. And there is not an algorithm that is telling him to have a horn players blow through their instruments without a mouthpiece. And there's not an algorithm that's telling him to use these bizarre ethnic drums and stop the string at the piano with your finger. You know, like the, these are genuine creative acts that he has to do that are... Yeah, pure artistic, intuitive yeah, exactly. expression there. The musical world that it creates is lovingly crafted mm -hmm. in every detail and it's incredibly detailed like jerry goldsmith's textural craft is really second to none his textural imagination the ability to conceive of just individual bars of this thing like vertical moments in time that it's going to sound this way <laughs> then engineer it to sound that way. I feel like he's one of the all-time greats at that. And this is obviously one of his great showpieces for that skill because his, his freedom was so absolute. Yeah. I wanted to highlight a point where the ram's horn gets put against all this other world of sound and there's these high keening strings and, you know, all this weird percussion we've been talking about. And that's the moment, the reveal when these three guys eventually sort of meet up with a pack of human-like creatures that are mute, that are being hunted, and hunted by whom? Hunted, it turns out, by apes riding gorillas. And the moment of the reveal... <laughs> by apes... <laughs> by gorillas... They're, they're being hunted by apes riding horses. And the moment that it is revealed that it is apes on these horses who are chasing the humans and shooting at them with rifles, the moment is this truly startling moment in the score. literally alarming it sounds like kind of an alarm being sounded like whoa 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 what kind of world am i even in here and i think it's just so effective yeah it's wonderful it could be the war call of the apes themselves it could be just charlton heston's mind freaking out yeah or since we don't really understand exactly where any of this music is coming from it could just be that we're out of our element it's wonderfully all three of those things. It's great. And the title moment that I was talking about before is kind of a premonition of this. They're, they're kind of the same material. Yeah. Is the ooh-ooh-ah-ah-ah sound there? Yeah, I was about to say. Then he uses something that's notated in the score as a friction drum, which I don't know exactly what that means. But yeah, it sounds explicitly like monkey sounds. Like, yeah, what you just said, ooh-ooh-ah-ah-ah, monkey sounds. <laughs> I don't know how they get it to do that. I'll tell you, John. Oh, good. It's called a cuica, and it is a Brazilian instrument used in samba music. And when it appears in a samba, you just think of it as kind of a quirky, like, whoop sound. What it is, is a drum, but on the inside of the drum, attached to the underside of the drum head, is... Uh, like a stick that extends out from the middle of the drum head and you reach in with like a cloth in your hand and tug on the stick to squeak the cloth against it and the squeak resonates through the drum head and makes this kind of resonant squeak sound and the tighter you hold the higher the pitch i imagine you can get different pitches out of it and it makes essentially a monkey noise uh which is what its intent was all along but um <laughs> I think it gets used in this score more. <laughs> it's kind of on the nose. It's kind of on the nose. In fact, if you're flipping through the pages of the score, you see that he put it in a lot more cues than they recorded it in. Uh -huh. I think they thought, that is pretty strong monkey effect. Let's limit our use of that. Here's 
Here's a really cool moment in a different chase sequence when Charlton Heston is staging an escape. He likes to do that a lot, I guess, trying to run for his life and he's being chased by all the apes. He makes his way into what apparently seems to be a museum, like a natural history museum, except the animals in the dioramas, Andy. I don't know what that is. Are humans. What? I don't know what that word you just said is. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, yeah, anyway, so the animals in the dioramas in the Natural History Museum are humans, and he's kind of creeping amongst them. It's very weird and cool and creepy. And this is perhaps one of the most predictably rhythmic moments in the score. There's a four-square tempo, and you can kind of predict where the beats are going to be and there's this cool percussion and there are these pizzicato figures i really like that moment and you know in a way because it's like the first four four bars that we've heard in who knows how long it manages to be weird in a different way after all the other weirdness this score is basically a landscape of wildness it's musically and sonically thrilling, and we could totally just go through pointing at bits of it and saying, like, listen to this. This is crazy. Yeah. But let's uh, try and talk about the score as score, which I think is always where we like to go with this. How did you feel about its impact on your dramatic experience? Well, I thought it was wonderful. I thought it had, you know, exactly the effect that we've been talking about of playing this otherworldliness, and I thought that was very evocative of the atmosphere, the tone, the mood of the movie, of the script. I felt like, yes, but the script is, it kind of points in two different directions. It's kind of like there's two different flavors of science fiction at work here. One is the existential cosmic science fiction, like 2001, sort of about man's place in the universe and these vast expanses of time and evolution. And and then in the other direction is this kind of political science fiction, like Star Trek, where, okay, there's this other planet, and guess what? It's really just an allegory for politics on Earth. They're sort of in different slots in my head, and getting from one to the other back and forth over the course of this movie felt a little awkward to me. Because we'd been sent out into deep space in every sense, the fact that you have to sit through like a courtroom scene in the middle of this movie where they argue about rights... I spent a lot of the time thinking, could the music have helped this? Could the music have done anything better to help me with this? That courtroom scene is hardly scored. At the end of it, there's sort of a glance between Zira and Cornelius. They sort of touch hands. There's no music for that. Don't you feel like this movie kind of has a lot of stagey talk in it for a movie that's supposed to be outer space to the max weirdness? Yeah, it does. That's a fair point. Yeah, and you're right. He does seem to have made the decision to stay out of the way of the stagey talk. And a similarly quibbly thing on the flip side of it is i feel like the two big action sequences where the music really comes to the fore the hunt sequence and then the escape sequence where he runs through a museum i feel like those scenes which have fantastic and thrilling music are almost overscored. the music is so vivid and vigorous and full of action and full of all of the activity that this serial style generates the moments when they sync up and Jerry Goldsmith says, look at this and look at that. It really works. But the spaces in between where he's just composing excitement, the composed excitement really outclassed the visual excitement in a way that I'm not sure was to the movie's benefit. that I would say, well, take it away. I don't want to hear such cool music. But I did feel like there was a kind of... There were the scenes that were underscored where I thought, why isn't the music making this more than just a stage scene? And the scenes that were overscored that was like, why is the music showing up that this is just kind of a chintzy chase scene? Uh, I don't know. How do you feel about that? I think I just enjoyed it for what it was. I thought, yeah, yeah I, I was happy to hear the cool music. Okay, great. So we should definitely mention that it's at the end of this sequence that he finally speaks his famous first sentence to the apes. Which is wonderfully prepared in the score. The 
there's all this exciting action music, and then after he says his famous line, the music is there with this kind of summary statement of all that we've heard to put this great punctuation on it. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Yeah, you always like to point out how famous movie quotes are very frequently the result of music setting them up to sound famous. And yeah, I think that that's absolutely going on. Here it is again. Because the delivery of this line is pretty silly. But the music <laughs> the music tries to tamp down on that as much as it can. You know, when we set out to examine you know, the great <laughs> film scores, did you anticipate that it would include so much of Charlton Heston's bare chest? <laughs> He's, he's half naked for almost the entire movie. He sure is, John. He sure is. <laughs> and in, in Ben-Hur, too. I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. He looked better in Ben-Hur. Well, sure. He doesn't look bad in this, though. He's 46 years old. Yeah. I have a hard time with Charlton Heston. Oh, yeah. I don't feel like Charlton Heston is the best asset a movie could have, but there he is. So interestingly, the famous moment of revelation when Charlton Heston sees the Statue of Liberty, falls down on his knees on the beach. Uh, there's no music for any of that. Oh, wait, John, wasn't there music there? Isn't there? Doesn't someone sing something at that point? <laughs> Could have sworn. Oh, my God, I was wrong. It was Earth all along. You finally made a monkey. Yes, we finally That'll do it. Yeah, that'll do. Right. That was even less tasteful than last time, but okay. No, I think it. that's, I think it's fair. Anyway, he falls down on his knees on the beach and he pounds the sand and says, You maniacs! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! By the way, I've been on that beach. It's out here in Malibu. Anyway, there's no music for any of that. And again, Goldsmith just said, yeah, we didn't need it. He thought that uh, just having the audience process this revelation was sort of enough for them to be doing, and he didn't want to add more information to it. Something noteworthy about the deployment of this score overall is that it is very top-heavy. When we are being dropped into this world in the first act of the movie, essentially, before he gets captured by apes... Yeah, before we learn that there are apes... The first third of the movie or so, I did a rough calculation, and there's music playing about 60% of the time. And then the latter two-thirds of the movie, there's music playing only about 30% of the time. Hmm. The music has this job to do, getting you situated yeah. in the bizarre world. It does it as often as it can in the beginning of the movie, and then it really thins out progressively. There's less and less as the movie goes along, because in a sense, you've been situated, that task has been completed. And I think that Goldsmith was right that by the time you get to the very end, the music has nothing else to explain to you. And leaving you with the sounds of the ocean to cope with the final twist is perfect. Yeah. If the music said, isn't this weird? You'd want to swat it away and be like, yes, yes, it's been weird for two hours. <laughs> So, yeah, I think that it's a great ending. And so the last cue is as he rides his horse up, the music lulls into this very ominous, uh-oh, uh-oh, something's coming kind of feeling. Well, it's reminiscent of the music from the main titles, right? It's similar to the music from when they're exploring the planet at the yeah, beginning. Right. It's more exploration music, and it just draws down to this, this lulling. It sort of blends in with the sounds of the surf, and it's done. It's done what it had to do, and it's just going to leave you to confront this thing with Chuck. <laughs> and I thought that was great. I did have a bit of a sense of the music not showing up when it could have earlier, but not at all in that last scene. Yeah. I thought it, it slinks off stage perfectly. All right, so let's see if we can slink off stage. <laughs> so where are you going to rank this relative to the other scores that we've talked about? I think this music is thrilling and obviously something special. This is the first science fiction fantasy movie that we've had on this list, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, we might have another one. We might have some coming. I don't know. There might be more. But I feel like this is a special category of what music can do is be fantastic. Open up your experience to something really beyond normal life and make it immediate and make it seem like you're there. What could be more artistically invigorating than to hear music from another planet? You know, things have sounded like this since, and some things sounded like it prior to it. You know, some of Jerry Goldsmith's own scores for The Twilight Zone, other music for, you know, Twilight Zone-type material had sounded a little like this, but this is, I think, the most full-bodied expression of this musical world that's particular to Hollywood when we talk about enjoying listening to movie music. This is really the stuff. You have to listen to movie music to hear this world of sound. Mm-hmm. So it's something very special. So it's going to go toward the top of my list. The top of my list right now is Streetcar from last time and below that, Ben-Hur. I feel like this is above Ben-Hur for sure because Ben-Hur is also something that you have to go to Hollywood to hear, but it's just got less spark and creativity. And, you know, for obvious reasons, this is much, much cooler. Yeah, it's cool. It's way cooler. I'm going to put it below Streetcar because I think that you could have gotten this movie to function pretty much as well without doing all of the virtuosic stuff that Jerry Goldsmith does here. I think this might be kind of a recurring thing for Jerry Goldsmith, that his musical skill far outstrips the dramatic necessity. And that's not a problem, but it also is kind of something just to enjoy when you listen to the soundtrack and just enjoy because you like movie music whereas with streetcar i felt like the music had a remarkable affinity for the drama here i feel like remarkable music was supporting the drama in a totally correct competent very good way but um nothing out of the ordinary yeah i am gonna rank it very similarly to you i think that this score is a stunning achievement i think it deserves an incredible amount of credit for being influential, for being daring and inventive, for coming up with its own language to tell this story and to establish the setting, and it does that wonderfully. In terms of comparing it to the scores that are at the top of my list now, which are A Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront, you know, I kind of feel like I'm at a bit of a loss. Like, what do I, how can I compare these things? Like, you know, which is a better language, English or Choctaw, right. you know? And uh, I think at the end of the day, I kind of have to say, well, I'm I'm an English speaker. I am most familiar with a standard Western orchestral sound with melodies and harmonies. And I think that being able to really get inside of a drama and make the audience feel something in that language is most meaningful to me. And, you know, as wonderful as this is, yeah, I think I'm going to slot it sort of in the uh, analogous place in my list, beneath A Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront, but above Ben-Hur. Okay. Beneath On the Waterfront also. Yeah, because I have On the Waterfront above Ben-Hur on my list, which enables me to do that. Right. But for me, it's above both of those. All right. Well, yeah, I'm putting it under On the Waterfront as well. Those two, I feel like those two scores are, are... I mean, listen, you know, we got to point out, these are all great things now. Like, we're at the point already in this list where everything's going to be great. It's no shame to be below any of these things. And, and also, Of course. And also, this cumulative list ranking is a terrible system for even making a list. So <laughs> it's absurd. Let's right. just be clear. Well, yeah, what we're doing is on his face absurd. So enjoy. Okay, I think, uh, I think that's the end of... Uh, Planet of the I think Apes. we've talked about Planet of the Apes enough. I think we definitely have talked about it enough. Uh, next time we get to talk about the first appearance of Elmer Bernstein on the list with his score for the 1962 drama To Kill a Mockingbird. John, I think we're out of the part of this list that was extremely dubious and into the, yeah, that kind of makes sense part of the list. I think that's right. So that's going to be exciting. It only gets better, right? For the most part. For the most part. You know what? There are still a few things coming up that I'm dubious of. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't be exciting if we were certain that it was going to be correct. It's exciting because they might be wrong. But I think most of it is right. (laughs) Yeah. All right. It is exciting. And, uh, you know, hope you'll uh, continue to to check it out with us. Yes. Um, John, (laughs) let's continue to listen what did you want to do (laughs) well here here's another thing that i'm now going to propose that we add into our sign out material which is i think it is now appropriate to uh just go ahead and say here on the air 
you know, hey, I uh, hope you've been enjoying the show. If you have, why not leave us a review on iTunes? And also, follow along in the conversation on Twitter at Scoresettlers. Feel free to chime in about things that we've said. If you have questions, comments, uh, it would be fun to uh, continue the conversation that way. Factual corrections, I'm sure. Sure. That'll be a ton of fun to oh, yeah. find out what we got wrong. Yeah, have at it. No, don't. Please, just <laughs> join in the conversation like you were here. Like you were just chatting with us and you were getting things wrong too. That would be much more comfortable for us. <laughs> yeah, feel free to write in and get stuff wrong. Um, yeah, join. Be a part of the community. Leave us a review and let's enjoy. Yeah, comment, subscribe. What do they, they have to do? Subscribe too, right? Yeah, subscribe. Sure. Yeah, subscribe. <laughs> yeah, it's like we're real people talking about a show now. Hey, Andy, let's listen to some more film music. Yes, John, let's do that. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs>